Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. It's June 2021. Hard to believe it. I uh, I don't know where the time's been going. <laughs> it's kind of wild. And it's so weird that we're starting near the end of all this, right? It is a strangely bittersweet time for me right now because... I am at the end of a journey. I've talked about it on the show before, but my wife and I made the uh, strange and difficult decision, I guess, to homeschool our eight-year-old daughter this year. Uh, My wife has been working in person for most of the year, so it was on me, the homeschooling. And it was kind of a rush decision made two weeks or so before school was set to open. My daughter's school uh, only offered an in-person option this year, and we just, we weren't there yet last summer. So... I started homeschooling, and now we're at the end of second grade, and my life as a teacher is going to be ending, and this beautiful time that I was able to spend with both my kids, my son is five, and, you know, he wasn't part of the homeschool. He spent a lot of the day with my mother-in-law, and then, you know, we'd have lunch together and go on nature walks together and things, but it's just, it's weird, like, to have had this beautiful family time, and now right as the world is opening and school is ending... You know, we're going to transition back to uh, to parallel lives, but not necessarily, you know, in sync with each other. So it's a weird feeling. I don't know. It's just it's it's what's on my mind right now. I've got, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight days of school left to teach, working on some cursive writing and math skills, and then it'll be over. And I guess I share that story in part because I had to make the decision this year of what was best for my family. And I feel like today's guest has been in that position too. Richard Louie is my guest. You know him from NBC News and MSNBC. He's an anchor and a reporter. And he was at CNN prior to joining NBC, but he's been at NBC and MSNBC for a while now. And his dad got diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease a couple of years ago. And Richard had to make the difficult decision of what to do with that. Richard lives in New York. He grew up in San Francisco. It's where his parents still are. So he opted to be a bi-coastal caregiver and essentially flew to the West Coast very regularly to check on his dad. And he has a new book out all about that experience. It's called Enough About Me. And uh, I read it. I was really touched by it, really moved by it. And it's not just a memoir, this book. It is a, uh, it's an exploration of what it means to be selfless, what it means to put others before you, and uh, the value in that. What's the benefit for us? What do we take away from that experience? So it's a really interesting book, and uh, this decision to become a caregiver for his father and fly cross-country very regularly, it's a tough one. You know, I I don't know what I would do in that situation. My parents are uh, in Kansas City, so half a country away, and Right now, they're healthy. They're in good shape. But if that ever changed, I don't know. My sister's there. She has power of attorney over them and all that. So, you know, I don't know. It's a tough choice. Richard talks about it in his book. So we dive into the book a lot, enough about me. But we also talk about his career in news, especially at NBC, and especially as one of the few people that was allowed into 30 Rock during this whole crazy time. Richard covers breaking news a lot of the time, anchors the breaking news coverage, and he had to be near a studio. 
So even though the headcount of the building was reduced to less than 5%, he was going to work every day in Midtown. So we talk a lot about that as well, as well as just his childhood growing up and his relationship with his father. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I was, uh, was pretty moved by it and uh, really enjoyed it. I will say this conversation took place about three weeks ago or so, and at the time, NBC was still limiting headcount. As I understand it now, because of vaccines and all, it's optional for employees to start coming back, and that just broke within the last day or two. So things may have changed from what Richard describes in this interview, but as of a couple weeks ago, that was still the reality on the ground. All right, here it is, my conversation with Richard Louie. So I want to start by just asking sort of the big picture question of, you know, these last, I guess, 14 months or so of, you know, COVID. What has this last, you know, year plus been like for you? The last year uh, has been one of the busiest years I've ever had, not only because of work and, and the horrible storylines that we've had to dig into, both around uh, the viral pandemic as well as the racial pandemic, sure. as many people have called, but um, also the work on a movie that I've had about caregiving and uh, also a book coming out called Enough About Me. Yeah. So all that kind of coming together has really made the year like a hundred pounds of sand and a 10 pound sack, as they would say, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it, just the work piece of it, I can imagine, is a lot. Trying to digest the news every day and, and make sense of that and then to add all those other things on top of it. That's uh, that's a lot. It is. It's been a lot. <laughs> So I want to talk to you about the book enough about me. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, well, I guess one of the things that really compelled me about it, I guess, is the story of, of you, uh, you know, having to decide at, as sort of your career in journalism is rising, whether you give that up or reduce it in some way to go and be a caretaker uh, for your dad, who's been suffering with Alzheimer's disease. I guess before we dig into the specifics of the book, how's your dad doing these days? I just saw him two days ago, and the guy is the healthiest, most wrinkle-free person uh, around right now. doesn't have a worry in the world, and we always laugh at him because he just looks so peaceful. Yeah. And he can't talk or walk or eat orally anymore. And he's bedridden, but he, you know, they'll, they'll sit him up the care community and he engages with you with his eyes and um, he, he looks great. I mean, he's, he's, he's a tank. Yeah. <laughs> what has this past year been like in terms of your role as a caregiver? Like, have you been able to, to see him in person as much as you'd like? I'm in New York and he's in San Francisco. And before the pandemic, I was traveling back and forth two or three times a month Yeah. because of COVID. I, could not travel because of the quarantines and all those requirements. And in between along the way, as you know, we had ebbs and flows of regulations on travel. Sure. So I wasn't able to make it back two times before this past week. Um, And the last time I went back, I was there only on the ground for 24 hours because of the quarantine rules. Yeah. And I saw him through the window and also visited my mother through the window. And so the parallel, as you know, from the news are all these separations that have really uh, hurt those who are older in our American communities. Sure. And I felt that having to look, uh, you know, again, visit my dad through a window, visit my mom through a window, eat lunch with her through a window. You know, all of that was surreal, but real for me as a micro to what was really horrible for so many American families. Yeah. 
I imagine too, just especially in the early days of this, you know, group homes were one of the places where the virus was really spreading out of control. Like, was that weighing on your mind at all? You know, but both the, the not being able to be there physically, but then just the concern of, you know, what could happen to your parents in this time? Yeah, my father being in a care community was the worry. And when they had one case and then they only had 24, 25 residents. But when they hit, you know, one case and then two cases and then three and then four cases, yeah. then they created a wing uh, and the building's not big. And my father was moved because they saw him as one of the, the weakest of the residents. Yeah. They moved him out into a completely different space. And so these care communities, I got to tell you, uh, really are have been through tough times, but yet remained so strong. And yeah. I can't thank them enough. I mean, the folks who still came to work, not even knowing what this disease was, they had no idea, right. but they still would go and take care of my dad. And they still had all these new cases. So hats off to them. Yeah, I, I can't imagine just the stress of all that, of, you know, especially in those early days, you know, not knowing about PPE or not having access to it. And as you say, just you have a job to do. There's people that need your help. You got to go and do it. And yeah, it's it's a level of bravery I don't fully understand personally. Yeah, but we respect it, right, Heath? And sure. on top of that, you know, these folks aren't, you know, the wealthiest. And, you know, public transportation is widely used by them. Yeah. And throw that on top of it, right? And then they go home to families. And in, in some cases, these are very strong core families with multiple generations living in the household. This virus was the perfect killer for such communities. Yeah. Um, beyond the cases that you, that you mentioned, you know, the four or five residents catching it, like, what was the outcome in, in your dad's home? Like, were there, were there losses of life from COVID there? What they told me was that all the cases that they had survived. Oh, great. And uh, whatever the, the situation, the actual data is, and that's, that's not for me to know necessarily, uh, is that they did do well yeah. in general. And um, I'm a huge fan of all of them. Uh, Kathy is the manager there, and she's done the best she could. She's the sort of person that would, when my first, my dad first was admitted to her care community would uh, come in on her days off to check his bed wound. Wow. And she healed it. It's that kind of person that really are the heroes in this. I mean, I was on a call this morning, a conference call, not a conference, but a panel in a hospital that does uh, these talks where they just sort of uh, go around to different members of their uh, healthcare community, their hospital, and uh, they just share stories. And today's theme was the current uh, anti-Asian hate phenomenon. Sure. And they reflected not only on that, but they also reflected on the losses that they have experienced during COVID. Mm. And it was so heartfelt. I got to tell you, Heath, they were so humble about what they really were doing. I always wondered as, as, a, as an anchor and reporters, I would watch them speak into their phones in their cars, right? And then they would be so scared. They might be crying. They might be angry. They finish the interview and they go right because they're in their scrubs. They get out of their car and they go right back into work. Yeah. And golly, just uh, just so many inspiring stories, I think, in the last year of people. Look, there's been the opposite of that, too. Uh, we have seen, you know, I, I, I call it a selfish pandemic. We have seen the very opposite. Um, people killing other people in, in mass shootings and 
and and as I was just mentioning, the anti-Asian phenomenon right now, what was, these random acts of hate and violence, I mean, it's just shocking. Yeah. So we have the opposite. But I do believe the, the these healthcare heroes, as an example, there are far more, more uh, selfless people than there are selfish. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's a theme you explore in the book at length is selflessness. Uh, and part of this, I guess, is just sort of your calculation of, of deciding to give up a career or, or put a career on pause to be a caregiver. Talk to me about like that calculation and just when you were having to, to weigh that in your mind and figure out what the best path forward for you was. What was what were you thinking about? You know, it was kind of um, I don't want to say gut reaction because it was it was it was a year in the making, you know, yeah. as soon as I knew he was diagnosed, I decided, OK, I got to make a decision because I know my my dad's going to need help at, at a certain point. He's going to need help. Yeah. And I didn't want him to go through this journey alone. And the journey is going to be long, uh, seven years or so. You know, he's year eight into it. And wow. so he's already above the averages. Uh, my, my goal was. um to try to do right by him. Cause you know, as a kid, he always stood up for me, you know, whether it was, I didn't think the teacher was a good fit for me or I needed to borrow money so I could go back to community college and he'd pay off my bills and borrow money against the house. And, you know, or if it was even when I was, uh, you know, in, in middle school where he, he, he knew I was getting bullied as a little Asian kid. And I write about that in the book. And he said, well, you know, do you want to defend yourself or not? It's up yeah. to you. And because he would talk to me as he's putting me to bed. And, I, and so three days later, he comes and saying goodnight to me. And he says, you make a decision yet? And I said, yes. And then he goes, well, uh, great. You decided to defend yourself. In fact, Richard, uh, I know of a Chinese uh, Shaolin Temple monk who is an expert in Kung Fu and he will teach you. <laughs> And I inside, I had to laugh a little bit because I was going, I'm being called the Kung Fu kid. And here you are uh, wanting to teach me it. it, it look, that I did uh, learn from that uh, Shaolin Temple monk and I did learn to defend myself. And this is, of course, the halo of Jet Li and the halo of Bruce Lee sure. certainly were a, a, an assistance as well. So my dad taught me how to fight gracefully. And so. You know, really, when it came time to make a decision, I knew it was time for me to fight for him because uh, he taught me how to do it. Yeah. But you're one of four kids. And as you say, your mom was still alive as well. Like just in figuring out your place in all that, like why did you feel such a strong sense of it has to be me? I have to be the one that, that goes in and helps him, too, or, you know, to, to play a role in that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, there's one argument that could be like, well, you've got your siblings who are already in, in, in California they can take care of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, so why would you fly across the country? And I was like, well, no, I, I want to do this. Yeah. Uh, he did it for me. And if it were me, he would do the same. So I'm not going to, this is not necessarily about just getting the job done. It's also, what do I want to do? Yeah. What is it that will, that I will feel right in my decision-making? And that's why I did it. And, and asking to work part-time, as you know, in, in the broadcast industry, you don't do that. You don't ask right. for less time. Right. You do not ask for less time. That is not your marker of success, right? Well, especially uh, in broadcast but, journalism. I mean, it's and, and yes, you talk sir. about this in the book. It is such a full time, you know, just all consuming career that like to to try to shift out of that. I mean, I just uh, talk to me even just about that process of like 
you know, when you hang up kind of that that anchor reporter hat and put on the, you know, son caregiver hat like that, the, the, just shifting between those two worlds must be very difficult. It, you know, it is, but it's not at the same time. So, mm-hmm. yes, it's an eight day a week job. Like, you know, I was being flown a- anywhere you can imagine to tell a story. Yeah. It built, though, and I, my boss, Yvette Miley's my boss, when I walked into her office and she said yes to the part time, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we were talking about it later because she's a long distance caregiver for her mother in Florida. And we were talking about why is the two of us at the time I, I was kind of doing a, a lot in terms of proportion yeah. uh, of work at the time. Uh, but it always changes, uh, as you know, in, in the mix. So sometimes that that point I was, but then it changed to my other brothers and my sister later on. We keep on going through cycles depending on where we're at in our lives and how strong we are at that yeah. moment. But at that time, yes, I was putting in a lot. And we were just uh, reflecting, my boss and myself, how come we're the ones who are the farthest away? And uh, we just said, because, you know, journalism in its small way equips us not to compartmentalize, but to work hard towards something in emotional and difficult times. Mm. An example of that is breaking news for me. Yeah, like in breaking news, you could be very human and react to how horrible that particular piece of news is, you know. but you know, those who exhibit that humanity plus the journalism at the same time, like Tom Brokaw and, and Andrea Mitchell and Brian Williams, who are my colleagues in the building, I watched them. And, 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 and so we were reflecting that journalism does prepare us actually hmm. for these situations, not because we don't care but because we can live very intense feelings simultaneously. That's really interesting. Just that, yeah, because you do have a job to do. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, 9-11 or something. And, you know, Tom Brokaw is there. And, of course, he's a he's a resident of New York City. And this is something iconic behind him happening. But he also has to deliver the facts and, you know, give people perspective. And, yeah, it is kind of these, these two tracks having to happen at the same time, you know, whether yeah. it's a personal event or or a news event. That's really interesting. And, and that was the, the training I, I when I was at CNN before, and then I moved to 30 Rock here at MSNBC and NBC News when I was uh, speaking with one of my mentors when I first joined here. And I was in my 40s. And I thought, oh, you know, I work at CNN and I've you know, been around the block a little bit. You know, I thought I knew my stuff. And then he came over to me in a very, very gracious way, in a very mentor-like way, supportive, and says, you know, when the breaking news happens, consider going slower, not faster. Mm. Consider that it is, you know, you're talking to that person just like you and I are talking now. And you're putting your hand on their shoulder saying, this is what is happening. Uh, we're getting the facts and we're going to get it done and uh, we're going to get it right for you. So that really helped me. So instead of going faster, which I thought is, you know, I'd, I'd give more energy to the story because it's breaking, right? Right. Instead, now what I try to do is I try to certainly still give its rightful uh, delivery, but I do slow down because it needs that, right? It, it, it need, And it's often a lot of ad-libbing, as you know. And so we would just go and go and take your time, get it right, yeah. be calm and deliberate. That was one of the things I think that um, was helpful to the caregiving piece. Right. And that that balance, you don't think that, but then you're in the middle of the caregiving thing. Well, how we used to fly, I'd, I'd finish work at 11. And um, when I was working Friday, Saturday, and I'm still working Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In fact, I'm 
talking to you right now because it's a Friday at 30 Rock. And I would finish my shift on Sunday, 11 p.m., go home, nap, get up uh, 3 a.m., be standing on the uh, on the subway platform to get out to uh, JFK for my 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. flight. And I got to tell you, Heath, there's many a time where you sit there on that cold platform by yourself wondering, what are you doing? Yeah. And um, I don't think if it weren't for the demands of covering breaking news in the field and, and on air here in the, the studio when I'm anchoring, I would have been able to really make it through the, through what I had to do because I would land. And then as soon as I got to San Francisco, in many cases, I could be up till 5 a.m., 6 a.m. on my shift watching my father who was wandering and falling. And, and so what we would do is we would take shifts uh, at the house yeah. to help out. And it, I th- I do believe the journalism breaking news trained me well to handle for him and my mom and my family uh, a lot of stress to, to move forward. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm really curious to just describing that whole process of, you know, the early morning train out to JFK and, you know, the long flights and all that. There must have been a moment at some point where there was some sort of calculation in your head about, you know, do I stay at NBC at 30 Rock and have my family in San Francisco or, you know, there's local news stations in San Francisco. There's, you know, radio yeah, news. Right. There's, there's all sorts of other career options like yeah. figuring out just I want to I want to be at the top of my game. I want to be at Rockefeller Center but I also have this obligation at the complete other end of the country. <laughs> like, how did you weigh those two? My boss, vet was like, let's come up with four ideas. And those, all those ideas that you just brought up were on the list. Yeah. In the end, this made the most sense. Uh, because if you, if I worked for a San Francisco Bay Area station, or even in LA, or even a California news organization, sure. then you're back on the five, six, seven days a week, right? right? And that doesn't assist. And, and I'm also, you know, to be a correspondent, you definitely have to be on the eight day a week schedule. Yeah. So it, there were ideas they would be harder to implement. It was easier as a anchor that would correspond periodically that I would stay here because everybody knew my situation. They were supportive of the situation. I could still contribute to the organization as well uh, by moving the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I also enjoy uh, the topics of politics and national and international news. So that all kind of fit well together that it, we would implement this way. Yeah. It's a lot. And I, I, you're, you're lucky you're in that situation. Cause I imagine oh, you know, yeah. for a lot of caregivers, <laughs> that's, that's not such an easy calculation, but yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about just, you know, if you go into a new workplace, you've got to kind of prove yourself and, and prove your yes. worth and, you know, if, yeah. if you're saying I got to run out, to, you know, this early today because I got this going, everyone's going to be like, who is this guy? You know, so. Yeah. Why do we hire that person? Yeah. Man. Right. Where And I, I call the NBC family has been so good to me. Yeah. I, I used to not stay in a job longer than I used to have this sort of, I don't know, unwritten four to five years when I was in business. And then I moved over the, to become an anchor at CNN. And it was my first news job. And I, I left Citibank and I just finished business school to do all that kind of work in, in industry. But now, Harry, I'm shifting to become a, an anchor. And I think that that strangeness to me was you might think that this industry is dog eat dog, right? That sure. it is, you know, cold and goodbye. And it can be that way like any business. But in my case, uh, during this super dynamic time, not only during COVID time, but 
before that. They're dynamic in a way that was caring, that shows organizations can be selfless. And certainly during COVID, we have seen even an organization that theoretically or stereotypically might be seen as uh, you know cold and you know very much down to brass tacks was very warm to me and even now is warm to all of our employees. You know, I'm sitting here and you know at 30 Rock and how are we able to get down to less than five percent of headcount being in the building at any one time, yet we still can run all these networks. Yeah. <laughs> and still have all of these broadcasts uninterrupted. How the heck were we able to do that? How are we able to still employ what you know well, this Heath, a process that is highly in-person and highly physical? Sure. And they got it done. They moved fast. They were able to keep everybody safe. They were able to keep everybody, for the most part, employed and kept the trains running. And I do believe not only in the broadcast industry or the news industry, that that idea of a selfless business has already begun uh, because that was a requirement. Mm-hmm. We have not seen the the business courses or the business books or the business cases out of Harvard or Ross School of Business yet, but I know they're being written in quotes right now because if you can do it at at, at 30 Rock and still operate and still give to your employees and maintain their safety and offer them medical care when you know their hospitals aren't uh, able and or equipped to help them that we would help them as an organization. These are things that we've never seen before from organizations. It's really, I think, going to be an exciting time. I hope we just don't forget the lessons we learned about having a very selfless business culture. Sure. Well, it's interesting, too, because a lot of the people I've spoken to on this show have been people that have had to pivot to some sort of at-home production. And as you mentioned, you were in the building the whole time when, you know, capacity yeah. was reduced to, to 5% or less. Like, just what was that like? Just knowing, you know, I mean, it's it's a big skyscraper where, you know, there's yeah, thousands right. of people every day coming in and out. I mean, even just, when, when I read 5% capacity in the book, I'm just, you know, I've done the Tonight Show and Today Show and stuff in that building before. Like, I know just the guys that check your ID to get on the elevator. You know, there's three guys there. Like, I'm just trying to imagine how just the building itself even functions, let alone, you know, the news operation and the broadcast side of it. Like, what what was your job like and what was the, the culture like during that time? It was really interesting. We, we, first of all, I don't know how they got it done. Right. Was what you're intimating. It's a very, it's a lot of people that make this thing keep on ticking, you know. We've got technology that needs to, you know, I, I've been here at, at nights when we, we had a, a brownout and 30 Rock in Midtown didn't have electricity for, oh, I guess it was 10 hours, 12 hours or something like that. And our our generators popped on immediately when I was here. But the one thing that happened is, so when the generators pop on, only certain parts of the building, at least in the broadcast floors, are powered. Uh-huh. And one of the spaces that did not get power was the server rooms. Oh, wow. <laughs> not in their entire, I'm sorry, let me be more specific. The AC that went into those rooms was not powered. Which is just as important <laughs> because if those That's get right. hot, yeah, the servers go down. Wow. So we were watching the temperature both remotely and locally because it was, it was, I think it was a Friday night or a Saturday night. And it got so crazy 
that so depending on what hour of the day I'm the designated survivor. So, for, for instance, all throughout COVID, I've come in every single weekend because uh-huh. on the weekends I'm the designated survivor. One of them. One of those. And that's just breaking like news. if breaking news happens, you that's know, right. they're going to go to you. That's okay. right. And so and, I, and I've done breaking news. Like, I mean, there was a time where I was on air just about every weekend day. It was just because there's so much, unfortunately, a lot of uh, shootings that were happening in the yeah. last, as you know, in, sure. in the last five years. So uh, then I'm getting scuttled after I get off the air. Uh, I finish my my show and they say, Richard, stick around. We're going to get you out to our backup location. So we have basically we have uh, sort of like a like all news organizations. We have this sort of, uh, if, you, if you will, the Armageddon mode. You know, uh-huh. think every, something horrible really happens like 9-11. And um, so I was being rushed out to New Jersey to our CNBC studios yeah. um, so that if the servers melted, uh, I could go on. Those sorts of just knowing all of that background yet we were still and I, I went through that entire story just to show how many levels that you're very aware of and you're showing in your profession that exists so how are we able to keep it going during covid if we didn't have any of that available to us right right we had never prepared for that contingency there's all these other contingency plans right like i'm being rushed out to new jersey it's okay that we have a you know that whatever the the i don't know what it's called specific i forget but i'll just call it the armageddon mode and and so you know we rallied a, a crew. We had a, everybody got the message. They knew that all, they had to go to New Jersey because we're firing up the backup studio. Not backup because it's really you know CNBC and in New Jersey is a huge facility as you know. Sure. And so it's not like it's a backup. We're firing up a, a CNBC on the weekends basically. But that's really amazing. What the way we were able to keep it going during with the four percent is what we hit one point two, but now we're at you know five percent. It really is something else, way above my pay grade, but they got it done. Yeah. Would it just like not having people around them, not having people just stopping into your office or, you know, being able to sit down with a producer, you know, things like that, like just yeah. mentally, like what has what has it been like to be one of that 5% in the building? Yeah, good shows get done with that face-to-face with your producers. But if you got a strong team, then you know, that's when you don't have to meet face-to-face. It's generally in new teams where face-to-face is very crucial, sure. right? For me, it is when we've seen each other, like I've seen producers I haven't seen in, in months and it's almost, it's like, it's like, a, like we've seen across the country in other contexts, but for us, it's like a reunion in the hallways. Like, how are you? Good yeah. to see you. And so it's been strange, but good. And I think very much underlying the gratitude that we all have for each other. Yeah. It's interesting, too. You know, you were talking earlier kind of about just the culture of NBC and, you know, people thinking that it's this dog eat dog backstabbing kind of place. Uh, news in general, not specifically NBC, but, you know, you were almost describing sort of a climate of empathy around what you went through. And that stood out to me in the book, too, that you were talking about a lot of reporters instinct in a moment of breaking news is to try to get as many facts as possible. You you know, tell me about the gun was one of the references you had in there that just, yeah, what was right. it? Was it a six caliber? Was it a this? And that you were, you've sort of learned in your time to try to, to find the emotion first. And that just to me is, it's a very empathetic approach. It kind of, I feel like there's a, just an umbrella of empathy sort of on, on all these things we're talking about. But w- why take that approach yeah. when you're interviewing a subject that maybe has be- just been through a huge trauma? Sometimes, I mean, every guest has their strength and their contribution to a story. 
And uh, the example I bring up in the book is about heroes that come to life and why do they come to life? You're, you're alluding to an interview that I did with Tiffany Parada, yep. who in El Paso, Texas, was the object, the, the target of a roaming shooter in a car. She was shot at and she was in her, what, I don't know, 25-year-old Suburban they get away from the shooter and then she and her husband look at each other and go, we got to warn other people. So they turn their car around and then they drive towards the shooter again. They overtake him. He shoots at them again as they're overtaking him. Uh, Cause although it's a, an older car, it's a, it's a strong motor and they overtake him. They roll down their windows and start screaming at other people yeah. saying, get out of the way, get out of the way. And when she began to tell me that story, and it's a, after doing a lot of breaking stories, you understand there's some people that you ask, what's the caliber of gun? What did it look like? Were there shells? What was the shape of the suspect? Blah, 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 blah. Right. You know, there's some people, her story, because we were already into the breaking story for about two hours or three hours. And, and, and uh, the suspect was still at large. And I could tell in her story, it was about humanity. Mm. Not that the caliber of a bullet's not, but it's about a bullet. And in her case, it was that she, when I was discussing it with her, I, I knew there, I, I didn't know. I had a, an instinct that this was about an amazing family and person making an amazing decision. And when I was asking and speaking with her, I approached, my tone was that way. I took my time. I imagined her sitting next to me and she being very nervous as you were describing Heath and, and taking the time to speak with me, but not wanting to, but not wanting to at the same time. Right. And as I went down the story, cause I was on air, the, the producer who I know well, and she's a great producer knew where I was going to go with it. And she said, take, okay, I got you. Cause before that, all of our discussions were not as long. This one was, I think like 20 minutes. I can't remember, but it was just long. And it, it, I got to a certain point and said, and because I was thinking, who else was in the car with her than than just her husband? Yeah. And she said, my children and your children. And where were they in the back seat? And can you give me their names and their ages? And so she began to and I don't remember the names, but Elizabeth is, is three. Uh, James is five. And then she hit her third child as she was going through them and she got choked up and she realized at that moment she didn't say it out loud that she had the, her whole world in that car mm. and yet decided to drive towards the gunman to run towards the fire and that was just an amazing rejection of that shooter's evilness yeah. of that re a, a complete rejection of the value of the selfishness of that shooter, of the anger of that shooter. It was a complete, yeah, well, this is what counts when it, it comes to being human. And she wasn't thinking that, right? She just did it. But I, that story was so much more powerful because she made it the story of what we can be when we stand up for our fellow uh, men and women. Yeah. And that, that discussion with, with her Heath is one of my people will ask, you, you know, and you might ask this to, of some of your guests, 
you know, what is one story that really stands out in your career or interview? That is one that stands out for me in my career. Um, and I was getting in my ear, X person would like you to get, ask about the gun. I did, but I asked about it at the very end. Yeah. And if I didn't get to it, I wasn't worried because that wasn't her gig. Her gig was showing us and teaching all of us and teaching all of our viewers what really was a story that day, a lot of horror, but even more selflessness, more goodness than we would have ever expected. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's almost a, a divinity, you know, to that yes. story. It just, you know, you, you feel yeah. something bigger and it, it, it brings up a question that I had in your book too. And that's, you know, you allude to your faith some, I mean, your, your father was a Presbyterian minister. So you grew up in a very Christian household and the way you describe it, uh, having a lot of ebbs and flows with Christ, with what Christianity means to you. And I love this line, my approach isn't the right way, nor will it be my forever way. But I'm curious sort of yeah. where you are mm-hmm. in your faith journey. It's really weird talking about faith in a you know, journalist. We don't do that. Sure. Right? <laughs> it's just, you know, if, if there's anything where you divide church and state, it is being in journalism more or less. And, and I've, I've got to work with some amazing individuals here at 30 Rock who are very faithful people, meaning they're, they're, they're very much in tune, very much embraceive of their faith. They handle it in a way that I think it was very instructive to me. But yeah, I mean, for me, religion and Christianity uh, has not been a straight line at all. Yeah. I used to, I say in the book, I, I wanted to become the world's youngest apostle, I think. Um, <laughs> Uh, or I am saying it now, I thought I wanted to be the world's youngest apostle. And I, I've, I quickly realized that these people who said they were Christian, and my dad was a big sort of, you got to go to church, you got to do this. He was the shaking finger pastor. Right. My mom was kind of the, Stephen, you got to let them find their own way. All right, Stephen, don't force it on them. So when we didn't want to go to church, it was a really interesting conversation. Hmm. My mom going, Stephen, you can't force them. They've got to find their own way. But I thought by watching my dad and he saying he was a pastor and a, and a Christian going, but you're so imperfect. I mean, you're jealous sometimes, you're selfish sometimes, you don't get it right. And, and then it's all these, all my fellow high schoolers who say they're, you know, these faithful folks and, you know, they're so materialistic. And like, so at a certain point I was like, forget this, right. I'm bailing. That's the zig and the zag that I've had. And that's just partially par- a part of it. The reason why I brought it up in the book, though, was because it, I wanted to try to be as vulnerable as possible about this idea that we can be selfless and not be perfect. Mm. And we can do it in ways that are small, bite-sized, and accessible. Not Desmond Tutu, as I say, not, you know, as I write in the book, not Mother Teresa, but more just like Heath and Richard doing their thing every day. Just do, uh, do our thing. We make a conscious choice every 15 minutes we were, as we were doing some of our research. As you know, I, there's a bunch of it in the, in the book. Right. We found that most researchers will agree that we make a, you know, a, a relevant conscious decision about every 15 minutes. Every one of those times is an opportunity to think about being selfless. You know, is it I'm crossing the street and there's a person that's homeless. I want to walk away from that person. Or do I give that person money? That's yeah. an opportunity to rethink, oh, I should give money. So, and then the other concept that we suggest, other than consider every one of those decisions an opportunity, 
Two is it doesn't have to be perfect. And I bring up the person that is homeless purposely because I myself have struggled with it forever. You know, even though I, I might volunteer for a food bank or a homeless shelter, when it comes to giving the money, it was always like, oh, but, you know, if you give money, we'll be properly used and blah, 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 blah. And then what I realized and learned in the book is if 60 percent probability that money will help that person is 51 percent probability, I'm going to give I'm going to give the money Yeah. because I can't find these perfect answers, you know, because I would just rationalize back and forth. So th- those are some of the things that came from the idea of action. What brought me to the idea of action, which was in that 51%, for instance, like my dad, who is not 100% perfect as a pastor, but is he above 51%? He is. Mm. And to me, he's, he's a good man. He works very hard and worked very hard to be good. And, but he just wasn't perfect. And that's okay. Yeah. Because he tried. He tried. And that whole sharing of that was important to, to, to bring across that idea, at least for me, of that it's okay, you don't have, you can't be a hundred, so don't even expect that of yourself or others. And, and therefore, it makes action more accessible because it's often that polarity, that binary that, that polarizes us in, in action. And action is the way which we build to another concept of muscle memory that allows us to, to be stronger, selfless people. So when the big thing happens, we do it like Tiffany. Yeah. I don't know what in her life, what she did. I didn't have that <laughs> amount of time, <laughs> but uh, it, there is something in her life where she built the muscle set. So when it came time for that moment, she acted. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but I know something, something built that muscle that when it was time she could leap and she leapt, she did big things. That vulnerability, going back to it, and I know these long answers, I apologize. No, this is great. But they're, they're just very long. As you know, you've read the book. They're very long and, and nuanced, and we kind of tried to tie everything together, was that vulnerability is, is, a, is, an, is a, an expression of, of being selfless mm. and because um, it's, a, it's a giving of yourself to somebody else. Yeah. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And that means why am I sharing my imperfect Asian American Pacific Islander experience in the book. Why are all these examples in there? And uh, I did that because number one, that's just who I am. Number two, it was for vulnerability. It was for that sharing of here I am and to, to express there's more than one way of being selfless. Yeah. Um, I want to end on uh, something that jumped out at me in the book as well. And that is uh, you mentioned that your dad is one of 13 uh, siblings and uh, I instantly felt a connection because my dad is one of 12 <laughs> and uh, your dad's uh, from a Chinese family. My dad's from a Filipino family. So, you know, big Asian families. I'm just curious, like what that was like for you growing up. Like, did you grow up around uh, you know, your aunts and uncles and things or like what was just the experience, I guess, of being from a big family? I did not appreciate it as much until I was older, but it was a lot of values came from that that I have today. And they were vivacious and energetic. They were super poor. And that brought a, a shine to things that we sometimes forget, right? A shine to a fresh meal, a shine to a loaf of bread. Mm. You know, my, my dad loved to make sure and go out and buy a loaf of bread for us. He loved to buy, you know, food and give it to us. Everything had a shine to it that I think because of that, coming from 13 siblings and, and not of much money. I think things were 
would make you smile more for some reason. Mm. And that's what I took away from, from the experiences. Things just seem to sparkle a little bit better. All right, there we go. Richard Louie. What a great conversation, huh? The power of being selfless. I love that. And the big family thing, big Asian families. Who knew? <laughs> There's a lot of us out there, I guess, maybe. Richard's book, Enough About Me, is on bookstore shelves now. Go check it out. And uh, you can watch Richard on NBC News and MSNBC. As he said, he's there Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays when he's not being a caretaker. A lot of hard work, a lot of dedication. It's an amazing story. I'm glad he shared it all with us. I have new episodes of Quarantine Creatives every Thursday. Make sure you hit subscribe so you'll be one of the first to get it. And you can check out my newsletter as well, heathrasella.com. Enter your email address, and you'll get that every Sunday in your inbox. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Check me out there. Go get the vaccine if you haven't yet. Stay safe. 